Thanks for tuning in to this special elections episode of Charlottesville Soundboard. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee, and I'm joined today by Nathan Moore and Arian Ballou from Bold Dominion, our sister news explainer podcast. If we're your audio source for local news, you should check them out for some great stories and analysis on everything going on at the state level. In a few minutes here, the three of us are going to break down the election results here in Virginia and the greater Charlottesville area, and we'll think about how this election fits into some broader political and electoral trends in our area, in Virginia, and throughout the South. But first, I'm going to turn it over to Charlotte Renee Woods at Charlottesville Tomorrow to give us an update on voting and how those elections turned out. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlotte. Um, It's about one o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, day after Election Day. So I want to start today by talking about how the vote counting has worked here. Can you kind of start when the polls closed at 7 p.m. and walk us through the process Virginia had for counting its votes and reporting them out? Yeah, so when the polls closed at 7, that's when local registrars start counting, uh, actually tabulating their in-person and election day results. Previously, when I was speaking to Albemarle County's registrar, all the early in-person voting that's been happening over the 45 days leading up to actual election day, it's been run through the ballot scanners, but it was they never officially hit tabulate because they had to wait until after 7 p.m. on election day. So that's when in-person voting, all of the in-person voting was tallied up and any absentee ballots that were arriving were um, tallied through the uh, central absentee precinct, which um, the results of that ended up posting by 11 p.m. for most localities. And most election results are not going to be completely clear until, you know, by the end of this week. Um, And some maybe even by the beginning of next week, because that is when the final deadline is in Virginia for registrars to validate any provisional ballots, finish, have have finished tallied up all their um, absentees and really like ascertain the full election results. And then, of course, other states have different timelines. Um, So for presidential, that's, you know, we could know in the next couple of days, we could know next week, we could know a couple of weeks from now, worst case scenario, if everything is really, really contested. Thanks for going over all those like vote counting logistics for us. I think this year it's especially important to know the processes by which we're getting these election results. So let's turn to the results themselves. What do you think we can expect from another Warner term in the Senate? I personally, for the last few years, have like jokingly referred to Senator Warner as like a king of bipartisanship. Um, A lot of legislation I get press releases about from him. He's always partnered up with Republicans on things. So I think that that's a streak we will continue to see during his campaign this, this, this time around. He definitely touted it as one of his strengths of I can build consensus. I can reach across the aisle. I know he is the co-chair of Senate Intelligence Committee. It's a very important position for him. I would imagine he would stay on that. When I was speaking with him also for the voter guide, he was talking about a lot of the things that he's actually teamed up with Kamala Harris on regarding police reform. So we'll see if he continues those those efforts. And we've talked a lot about the 5th District, the 5th Congressional District of Virginia. But um, what do you think we can expect from Bob Good as our congressional representative? 
Um, last night, I actually asked him, you know, flash forward January, you're in Congress. What are like the first couple things you're going to do? He kind of reiterated what he told me when we were speaking for the voter guide a few months ago, which is he really wants to push forth a Life at Conception Act bill. He wants to, you know, promote fiscal conservatism and trim down taxes as much as possible while in Congress. He supports everything Trump basically supports for immigration reform to include ending, um, you know, birthright citizenship. Um, and he wants merit-based immigration. And then he also really strongly supports the Second Amendment. So that's been a rallying call for a lot of his supporters. How much he can get done depends on how much consensus he can build while in Congress and what the majority is. I know that right now, you know, Democrats really want to secure and hold on to the majority that they have in the House. Things haven't been officially called, but Cameron Webb did concede. With last night's concession, Democrats did not gain that seat, but they didn't lose it either because Bob Good is succeeding another Republican, Denver Riggleman. Um, I would say that Good has called himself a bright red biblical conservative Republican. So the torch is passing to another Republican, but this Republican is going to be a bit brighter of a red. So that's the difference that we'll see. So turning to the back of the ballot, we've also been talking about that redistricting state constitutional amendment. Um, What were the results of that referendum? As election officials have been saying, this is election week, not election day. So we will see what happens in the next couple of days, but it looks like it will pass through. Um, And then the second constitutional amendment, it looks like it's really sailing through. Um, It has 80, almost 86% of the vote right now. But again, not all precincts have um, reported in. How do the experts that you've been talking to expect Virginia's congressional districts and representation to change with this commission? I've actually heard different things from different people. University of Virginia demographer Hamilton Lombard, who I spoke with in my reporting and for a video that we did, he was saying part of why the 5th District and the 7th and a few others in Central Virginia kind of like stretch upward towards Nova is because population density and districts have to have balanced populations. So you, and they also have to be contiguous. So it's part of contributing to that reach. Um, however, when I was speaking with a couple of other people, they were saying, well, maybe this, the fifth congressional district won't even include Charlottesville, Albemarle, Fauquier, Rappahannock anymore. Maybe it will be more centralized and focused on the center of the district or center stretching south to Danville, North Carolina border, like it is the chunk that, um, you know, Virgil Good won in, the chunk that Tom Perriello won in. By the time Tom won, it stretched up a little bit. And then now by the time that, you know, Tom Garrett and Deborah Riggleman won, it stretched up a little further. And now Bob Good. The big change that will happen, though, which whether the constitutional amendment passes or not, is at least for 2021, there are laws in place that end different types of gerrymandering. So the shapes are probably going to be slightly different, but it's how different they will be. It's too up in the air at this point. But it's something we will continue to talk about with you over the coming year or so. What are your key takeaways from election night or what's something that really surprised you? I will admit I was surprised by the 5th District being, you know, it's not a perfectly tied up bow at the end of the night, but the fact that it was as as clear as it was by midnight. I mean, I had, you know, registrars telling me, Virginia State of Department of Elections telling their registrars to prepare for that the 5th District to be one that is not revealed right away. So that was one that 
surprisingly was a bit clearer than expected. And right now we're really seeing the seventh district play out the way that I think a lot of people thought that the fifth would play out. Send good vibes and good thoughts to your reporters in town and across the state and across the country because everyone's working really hard and is very tired. And thank your registrars and your election workers if you can, because they're working very hard and are probably very tired as well. This is, it's tough work right now. And it's, um, it's very crucial because when amendments pass or don't pass or when a certain candidate wins or doesn't win, it really has impact. Thank you all for your super hard work. And I'm sure it'll continue for the next couple of weeks, too, as we wait for all of these results to come in and be certified. Mm-hmm. I hope that you're taking care of yourself. And that goes for all the listeners, too. Yes. At some point, just put down your phone for like an hour, take a walk, take a bubble bath, have your favorite meal, have your favorite drink, something. <laughs> I will be taking maybe all of those pieces of advice this evening. We'll see. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Charlotte. We really appreciate it. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You can find their coverage at seaviltomorrow.org. Feel free to take us on a walk or to your bubble bath, but don't take your break from the news just yet. In our next segment, we talk about what all these results mean for us and for Virginia. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. As of this recording, we do not yet know the winner of the race for president, whether it'll be Joe Biden or Donald Trump. We're recording this the day after Election Day, and several states are too close to call and still counting votes. But we have a pretty good idea of how Virginia voted. Going into the 2020 presidential election and U.S. congressional elections, a lot of us here in Virginia were asking if Democrats' statewide winning streak would strengthen. Four years ago, Hillary Clinton beat Trump in Virginia by five points. When all is said and done, it looks like Joe Biden is going to beat Trump by about nine points, maybe more. So what's that say about politics in Virginia? We've got a great show lined up for today, and it's a joint episode with Charlottesville Soundboard. So I'm going to introduce the host and producer of that show, Mary Garner McGee. Hey, Mary Garner. Hey, Nathan. What's your one-sentence takeaway from the election in Virginia? This is not the sexiest post-election story, but um, I think Virginia was really on the forefront of making voting safe and accessible during this pandemic. Um, this is going into sentence number two, but we had 45 days of early in-person voting, and hopefully that means that we don't see too many election-related COVID cases. Cool. Well, we're also joined by Arian Balu. Uh, he is the producer of Bold Dominion. Arian, thanks for being our guest this time on the, the other side of the microphone. Well, it's always fun. The last time I did it, I cut myself out for sounding like a fool. <laughs> well, um, what's your 10-second takeaway from the election in Virginia? Uh, I started this thing and I was going to say, you know, I wish it were a little more interesting, but seeing how things are going in the more interesting states, I'm glad things are safe and relatively uncontroversial here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take that as a, as a go. So today, I guess we're just going to start with the election night results, right? Um, and the polling uh, going into it. You know, the, the, the popular sites, you know, Politico and 538 and 270 to win, all these sites put Biden as like a really, really odds-on favorite, you know, like, like nine, 91, 92% chance of winning with really comfortable margins in a lot of states. Turns out a lot of those states don't have as comfortable margins in reality as we thought. Um, I mean, what do we know about 
why the polls seemed kind of off this time around. I mean, the thing that I've seen going around a lot, which I think, you know, rings rings true to the voices that I hear on the podcast that I listen to and what I've been reading in the newspapers and stuff is that really representation in journalism and in media has a really long way to go. And um, if your newsrooms don't reflect the communities that you're reporting on, your polls and your stories going into Election Day might not be as accurate as they could be. And I mean, in fairness, if there was ever going to be a year where where the polls missed something, 2020 makes a lot of sense for that. I mean, 2016, uh, things were messed up. Mainly, I think they identified uh, it was undercounting those who were uh, non-college educated white voters. They said they corrected for that. But who knows what other kind of factors kind of went into making the misses that we had this year. I was not a polls truther. Uh, but now I don't know if I can ever look at polls the same way. <laughs> um, let's zoom in on Virginia a little bit here, uh, where we did see uh, Biden beat Trump pretty handily, not quite the 11 or 12 points that was predicted, but still about nine, maybe nine and a half. Um, Virginia counties and regions across the state did change their vote some. We saw up in Northern Virginia, Central Virginia, the counties around Richmond and Charlottesville, all the way out to Stanton, actually went even more blue this year. Uh, meanwhile, the counties in southwest Virginia, parts of Southside Virginia, actually went even more for Trump than they did in 2016. Uh, what's the story here? I have a theory about this. Um, and I think part of it is that, you know, as housing prices in places like Charlottesville and Richmond go up so rapidly, it's really pushing a lot of people into now suburbanizing areas that used to be a lot more rural. Um, and I talk about Fluvanna County all the time. I grew up in Fluvanna County. And Cameron Webb, Dr. Cameron Webb, who was running as a Democrat in the 5th District, won very narrowly Fluvanna County in this race this year. And, you know, that's a place it's about halfway between Richmond and Charlottesville that a lot of people move to if they can't afford to live in Charlottesville. Um, And so I think that one side effect of rising housing prices in places like Charlottesville and Richmond is that it's turning the places around them more blue as people who want to live in those urban areas um, can't afford to. And so they move farther out and change the communities that they move into. One thing. So, I mean, on the face of it, I'll say this much, right? Uh, This was as policy free an election as I think we can get. It was really, you know, Trump's personality driven everything versus the soul of the nation message from Joe Biden. And the people who care a lot about the aesthetics, the norms, um, all of those aspects of politics are the people who are firm, like they've all gone to Biden. People who don't care so much about that kind of thing, they have to be convinced by something. And I don't think there was enough of a message from the Biden campaign to affirmatively convince a lot of the people who were on the fence or voted for Trump to move over to their side. It was definitely a Biden was a safer choice. I mean, this certainly wasn't a Bernie race, right? I mean, that didn't stop the Trump campaign from trying to call Biden a socialist. Same playbook they would have done against Bernie. Uh, yeah, 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 I mean, it's laughable, really. But but yeah, Biden was, I mean, what is he for is, you know, some technocratic solutions to, to social problems. And really, more than anything, just a return to normal, whatever that means. This is a, a hypothetical question, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's too much, but... Um, if the Democratic Party actually embraced, you know, economic progressivism in a, in a serious way for a couple, three election cycles, would you start to see more support in rural areas? Because that that rural-urban divide is a real deal, and and I think the the resentment that that a lot of rural people see toward city people, or rather have toward city people, is is a real deal. 
Um, you know, they see the wealth concentrated there. They see, you know, things that, that they don't identify with. And, you know, they like their little towns, but, um, and they like their lifestyle there. But, you know, I think there's a pretty real perception that, that a lot of the decisions that get made are in the cities and they're not to the benefit of real places. Um, what would it take to, to change that? Um, I mean, I think, I think it would work, right? I think that uh, people fundamentally will vote for, this is a, again, hypothetical abstract, people fundamentally vote for the person who they think will be in their best interest. And, you know, economic progressivism doesn't, I, I don't think it's a left-right issue um, as much as sort of a, a it, it's good for everybody, right? Uh, working class uh, solidarity and, and message. So I think you'd see a lot of that. The The counterpoint is obviously then you have the, the economic side uh, versus where Democrats and Republicans currently have clearly divided themselves, which is uh, the culture aspect of things. You know, where do you stand on Roe v. Wade? Where do you stand on guns? That's that's where you're probably going to get people who, you know, m might vote against their economic interests in favor of their cultural interest. I think personally that, you know, if you give people a clear, unambiguous, this will be good for you economically, they'll be willing to overlook cultural issues that they have with the other party. I mean, it's funny to hear you say that it doesn't even feel like a left-right issue because I feel like economic issues are the only left-right issue. Everything else is kind of, you know, different flavors of it. I th I think maybe maybe when I say left-right, uh, Democrat-Republican is different from left-right. Yeah, right? <laughs> right, right. That's that's what I mean more so is the difference between parties. Um, you know, both parties, the establishment agree uh, typically on policies that work against, you know, economic progressivism, the working class. Right. That's where they agree and where they have their disagreements is the culture side, which I think is important, but less important. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll give a give props to intersectionality, of course, and the need to, to uh, look at how race and, and gender and LGBT status all intersect with class in, in really important ways. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people meeting their basic needs and, and then some and thriving does seem like a really key thing that neither party is actually doing much of right now. So the roots of the American civil rights movement are incredibly connected to socialism in the South. In Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia in the 1920s, the first people to become involved with what would be the American civil rights movement were socialists. And by socialist, I mean what we would think of today as democratic socialists, um, in that they believed in democracy, they believed in representation, and they believed in economic justice. They believed in economic equality, economic opportunity. You know, if you read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in high school or college, um, that was the brand of American socialism that they were associated with. And that's a part of the narrative of the civil rights movement that we've really erased, um, despite the fact that, you know, when, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, he was working on the, the poor people's movement. You know, he was organizing sanitation workers. And in the 1920s, there was like this critical point, right, where poor white farmers in the South, white sharecroppers had the opportunity to join up with their black neighbors and fight for economic justice in the South. And instead, you know, white politicians and plantation owners pitted those two groups further against each other. And what we saw over the course of the 20th century was that poor white people comprised some of the most violent opposition to the, to the civil rights movement. Because if you don't have 
economic prosperity. Like at the end of the day, the theory goes like whiteness pays. And so, you know, there are already a lot of progressives in rural areas. And there's also a long history of government support in rural areas. Like a lot of farmers, a lot of white farmers in particular, got a lot of government support during the New Deal. And to this day, my parents' internet and electricity comes from a co-op. Those are progressive things. Um, But also, you know, I was home in Fluvanna for uh, Thanksgiving a couple years ago, and I was talking to some folks whose kids work for the really big Walmart distribution center in Louisa. And, you know, they were talking about the fact that their kids couldn't come to Thanksgiving this year because that's like the busiest day of the year at Walmart. And they were like, the way that Walmart treats the employees is so terrible. Like, you know, they'll change their schedule on them at the last minute. And like, we don't have internet. So I'll drive all the way to the Walmart in Louisa only to find out that my schedule has been changed and they make them work on the holidays, stuff like that. And then at the end of the conversation, they were like, man, if only the owners of Walmart knew about this, then I'm sure they would fix it. If only they knew about it. So I think that there's like a really, really deeply rooted sense of individualism and like trust in capitalism and like corporate institutions at the same time that there is a long-seated dependence on government intervention. And I think in a lot of rural communities too, like that are suburbanizing, you know, places like Nelson and Fluvanna County and Louisa and like around here, I mean, there's a huge cultural divide between people whose families have been there for many, many generations and people who are moving in recently. Side by side, uh, different different uh, populations almost. I want to turn things back a little bit to uh, Virginia's congressional races, um, including the 5th District uh, of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, this race was, was interesting on its own terms because the incumbent, Denver Riggleman, was kicked to the curb by his own party. The Republican Party held a caucus this year and uh, largely seems to have rejected Riggleman for the reason that he officiated a same-sex wedding of one of his staffers. Bigfoot erotica is cool, but gay marriage is not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the Republicans kicked him to the curb. That meant that the race was between uh, former Liberty University wrestling coach Bob Good as the Republican and uh, UVA doctor and health policy wonk Cameron Webb as the Democrat. Uh, Bob Good won by five and a half points. So now there's a hardline, self-described biblical conservative going to Washington from the 5th District. Um, There's two things I want to talk about this, guys. Uh, one is that that it's the pretty similar vote turnout to 2018 when Democrat Leslie Coburn lost. She lost to uh, Denver Riggleman by about six and a half points. Uh, this year, Dr. Webb lost by five and a half points. So the needle moved a little bit, but really not that much, even with a strong Democratic candidate and frankly, not a, a real inclusive Republican one. Um, why did the needle not move much? All right, I have two theories on this one. This is where I had some fun looking at the uh, elections.virginia.gov results that they put up on their website um, for this year. And then also the Charlottesville Voter Registrar Office on their like main voting page has voter turnout statistics going back to 1975. So one of my theories is that, um, you know, turnout is already pretty good in Charlottesville and Albemarle. Um, Like you said, in 2018, when Coburn ran, 67 percent of active registered voters turned out. In 2016, it was 77 percent. 
we don't have numbers back for it this year, but um, those numbers are significantly higher than national averages. And um, really, the Charlottesville Albemarle area is like the Democrat voting area in the 5th District. Um, so you're definitely trying to turn out some voters in, in other places. I mean, like I said, this year, Fluvanna County went for Webb. I think the first time a Democrat has won any countywide election in Fluvanna County under the label of a Democrat during my lifetime. But there's, you know, only so many Democratic voters in Charlottesville and Albemarle, and almost all of them are already voting. So there's not a whole lot of headroom there, I think, is is one reason why. Um, And it's a gerrymandered district. So that's one reason. And then this one is a guess. And it's hard to know where people stand ideologically from a binary vote for Bob Good or for Cameron Webb. But I looked at the percentages in all 23 counties in the 5th District, and only three of them had less than a 10-point spread. So that means in the other 20 counties, either Webb or Good won by more than 10 points. So we had only three counties where it was even close. And so that kind of makes me think that you've got two pretty entrenched groups of voters who know what kind of candidates they're looking for, in many cases probably vote for the same party every two years when this comes up. And the differences year to year from a strong candidate and a weak candidate, you know, maybe don't affect people's decisions all that much um, when you combine the fact that the Democratic area already has really strong turnout. um, And also it, it seems to be a pretty polarized district. Polarized is one word, but it's also gerrymandered like all hell, right? Oh, yeah. As Charlotte Woods from uh, Charlottesville Tomorrow always puts it, that's the dragon rising out of North Carolina in the room here, the dragon in the room. (laughs) So instead of gerrymander, this will be the Jerry dragon. Uh, Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, So, I mean, this district is the size of New Jersey, right? Uh, And it stretches from the the North Carolina border all the way up to the D.C. exurbs, uh, you know, Warrington area. I mean, there is very, very little culturally similar between, you know, like South Boston and the D.C. suburbs. Um, they're both within the state boundaries, but that's about it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think really you, you look at this district and it's very blatantly and obviously has been designed for, for a comfortable Republican majority. Hey, that's a good segue, though. The constitutional amendment passed. Uh, there was a constitutional amendment on the ballot this year, uh, actually passed by about a two-to-one margin, and it would change the way we decide where the district lines go. So historically, the way each legislative district is drawn in Virginia is that the General Assembly draws up the maps and approves them. It's based on census data that comes in every 10 years. So whichever party is in charge gets an enormous say in how the lines are drawn. Both parties have practiced gerrymandering over the 20th, 21st centuries. Um, That's where they pack lots of votes from the opposing party into just a few districts and then leave their own districts with nice, comfortable six, seven, ten point margins, essentially drawing the district lines to pick the voters they want so they'll stay in power. Um, And I think that's really how you end up with District 5, which, you know, has that absurd shape like a dragon rising from North Carolina. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's built to create a Republican victory. Uh, I think that gerrymandering is how you end up also with this fun fact. Virginia last elected a Republican to statewide office in 2009. But until 2019, two-thirds of our congressional delegation was Republicans. For a long time, it was uh, uh, seven Republicans and four Democrats in the the delegation to the U.S. Congress. Uh, And then in 2018, the election of Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, and um, 
the Northern Virginia district. Uh, Jennifer Wexton. Yes, Jennifer Wexton. Thank you. And Jennifer Wexton up in Northern Virginia, um, you know, basically flipped it from seven to four to four to seven. So, uh, so now there's going to be a bipartisan redistricting commission. Uh, Peter Galaska actually had a quick a little comment about that. The not so great news about the the new amendment is first off, there's no guarantee that minorities are going to be in, in any of the committees at all. None. And you got eight coming from the General Assembly and eight from you know citizens. There's still a great deal of um, indirect General Assembly control over who gets picked, and so that's going to be a problem because I mean, you know, Virginia legislatures are very good at playing games. So you know, <clears throat> you can only hope that that it's it's better. It's like as I think we talked about once. It's a a half a loaf is better than no loaf. And that's about where we are. <laughs> I know a lot of people were so upset about the amendment and the way the controls are and the way it was written that they really wanted it gone. So what do y'all think? Is the uh, new congressional amendment, the new way we draw lines, is it going to make the difference? This was one of the most mind, like, mind-boggling issues on, on the – absolutely the, the, the most complex issue on the ballot, I think, this year. Uh, I, I did an interview with Brent Tarter, who wrote, literally wrote the book on gerrymandering. He said he was voting yes. Um and right up until I walked into the ballot box, my brother and I were debating this and I flip-flopping um, because it's 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 really hard, right? Because this would have been the year, this is the year that redistricting reform would do something because the lines are getting drawn next year. The question of whether this proposed committee has teeth, I don't think it does. I mean, you could see this from the way that uh, the Democrats in line uh, who were kind of handing out sample ballots were saying vote no. The Republicans are very much saying vote yes. Uh, But even that is a little complex because I know Sally Hudson, uh, who we've had on the show, uh, Democrat progressive, she proudly voted yes for the amendment. So it's it's tricky. I'm not a huge fan of it passing, I'll say personally, Um, just because I think there's the potential that the districts are going to be it's going to go to the Virginia Supreme Court anyway. I think one of the biggest theoretical conversations happening um, on the left right now is the role of incrementalism. If you take marginal steps, is that going to get in the way of getting those big changes that you want down the line? But I think that this amendment is a really good example of that, where like it's a step towards having a less partisan way of drawing the boundaries. But it's not the commission that the people who are really against gerrymandering would want. So overall takeaways, the uh, November 3rd elections have taken place. Results are still, uh, but uh, Virginia's count is pretty well uh, almost done. Um, what's what's the say? What do we know? Yeah, I think one thing that's, that's been really interesting to watch under the first four years of the Trump administration is how states like Virginia have been a testing ground for policies that you know, weren't able to go through at the the national level. So, you know, I hope that however things go down, that um, Virginia continues to try new, exciting, bold ideas at the local and at the state level. So if Virginia is really blue nowadays, what, what kind of blue are we going to be? What's it going to look like in the future? I think it's fair to say that Virginia is a is a tempered blue. Charlotte calls it indigo. So it's it's blue with um, some some bright red pockets. And then also, you know, if you look at the primary results, um, the Democratic primary results, Virginia went pretty strongly for Biden. Um, not a lot of support from more progressive candidates. So 
even though Virginia is like now widely considered to be pretty solidly democratic, I think it's a long way from becoming a progressive state. And I think that we've seen that in the policies enacted by the Democratic leaders, you know. Um, So up in D.C., you know, just a little bit to the north of Virginia, they have a $15 an hour minimum wage now. And here in Virginia, when we decided to to raise our minimum wage, uh, we're doing it pretty slowly, a few cents every year until we get up to a higher level. And I think that that's just a good example of, you know, the difference between you know, a solidly blue state like New York or California and a solidly blue state like Virginia. Ariane, I know you uh, were uh, had noticed some some polling of people and how it sort of tends to differ from the priorities of... of- oh, yeah. Oh, man, I could talk about this for days. Uh, last night, election night, Fox News put out a poll. Fox News, mind you, put out a poll that, that showed kind of the priorities nationwide of a lot of Americans. And there was over 70% of, of respondents uh, were in favor of government health care, more money being spent on green energy, and a path to citizenship for uh, undocumented immigrants. All of these positions are super popular nationwide. But the election that we just had is easily the most substance-free one we've had in certainly as long as I can remember, which, to be fair, is not very long. And so it just strikes me as as the, the 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 lane is wide open for somebody to take any of these policies, especially maybe healthcare during a global pandemic, and just running away with a majority of people who need help and would like someone to listen to their needs. Yeah, I mean it's funny, Ari. You and I have talked about this off off line a little bit. Um, it's the kind of thing that, that today's GOP doesn't really seem equipped to do. You know, the idea of the government being involved in programs that help people uh, on a wide scale, you know, the, the, the rich people that run it are not into that. And meanwhile, the, the Democratic Party sort of had those roots, but it's been a generation since they really made that the front and center part of their priority. So where does it come from? You know, I mean, I think, you know, third party history in, in the United States over the last 50, 100 years has been a story of, you know, uh, well, mostly failure, to be honest. Um, so, you know, how do you build the coalitions within one of those two parties to make it work? Yeah, I mean, they thought people thought that's what Donald Trump would do in 2016. He had some of the the rhetoric of somebody who was, you know, looking out for working class people and those kinds of economic messages. He has since governed either incompetently or as a straightforward Republican, which... I mean, so if the lane's wide open, I guess, uh, see if the, the Democratic leadership will, will come on board, huh? Pass the torch to new leaders? I, I certainly hope so. All <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Mary Garner and Arian, thank you so much for uh, our little chat fest today about uh, the, the elections nationwide and also here in Virginia. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been super fun. And Arian, now you got to go edit this. Yeah, that's less fun. <laughs> Arian Balu is the producer of Bold Dominion. Uh, Thanks also to some journalists we heard from today, Charlotte Woods from Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Peter Galaska, who spoke with us via Skype. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. You can find the show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Keep washing your hands and wearing masks, and I'll talk with you again in two weeks. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner-McGee, and our guests today were Nathan Moore, Arian Ballou, and Charlotte Woods. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. 
This is Soundboard.